And uh, each week we go over uh, just something that we believe that the Bible says. It's a portion of our statement of faith each week. And so if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you will find uh, that we believe that the Bible teaches of the way of salvation. And I'll read this. And then if you have any questions about it, you are more than welcome to come, come ask me later. I'd love to talk with you about the way of salvation. That's, that's the thing that we are celebrating here this morning is the good news of the gospel that God has, in fact, provided a way of salvation. So let's read this, and then we'll pray and jump into the text. We believe the salvation of God's people is completely by grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God. By the appointment of the Father, He freely took to Himself our nature, but without sin. He honored the divine law by His personal obedience and made a full atonement for our sins by His substitutionary death, satisfying God's wrath. He rose from the dead and is now enthroned in heaven. Jesus, the Son, unites in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections and, as such, is qualified in every way to be a suitable, compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the gift that it is to be reminded of the way of salvation. Thank you for your son, for him being a substitutionary atonement for us. Thank you, Jesus, for standing in our place. Remind us of this good news this morning. Help us to be a people who are firmly rooted in your covenant promises. Thank you for being a God who keeps his promises. Thank you. Lord, for those who serve our body so that we can gather in this way, particularly those on the setup and teardown team. Lord, putting carpet squares out each week and signage and chairs and coffee and food and setting up the kids' area. Lord, we are grateful for the way that they serve this body. Lord, we pray. Uh, that as we are reminded of your faithful promises this morning, that our community, that that Westerville and the greater Columbus area, would come to know your promises. They wouldn't just know them, but they'd believe them. Lord, we need more churches proclaiming your promises and the fact that you have faithfully fulfilled them. Lord, we are grateful for other churches that are doing this. Think particularly of Oikos Community Church in Hilliard. Lord, thank you their co-labors in the gospel. Thank you for their rootedness in what your word says. Lord, as their new pastor, Pastor Daniel Funke, gets settled in, Lord, we ask that he and his family would become well acquainted with the community and that they would be a blessing not only to their church body but also the community that they live in. Lord, we pray for Florida. As Hurricane Adalia has now swept in, We ask that you give Governor Ron DeSantis and President Joe Biden wisdom as to how to address the needs there. Lord, provide the resources financially. Lord, provide food and water. Provide hands to do the labor. And we ask that you would help those communities rebuild. 
Lord, we think also of those who, not, those who aren't in our community, but also those who are, have no access to the gospel. Lord, we think particularly of the Sikh Walmiki people of India, an unreached people, 0% evangelical Christian. God, we ask that you would raise up missionaries. Lord, raise up missionaries in this body. Help us to be a sending people that joyfully send out co-laborers. Lord, you tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord, raise up more laborers here and across the world, and we pray that you would send some to the Sikh Walmiki people in India. Thank you that they have a completed Bible. Lord, we pray that that Bible would be read far and wide and that they would hear the truth and that they would receive it in faith. We pray for India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. Lord, we ask for his conversion, that he and the Indian government would be friendly toward Christians. Give him wisdom leading India. Bless him with that. We ask that you would bless him with a biblical understanding of justice and righteousness. We entrust that your word this morning won't go out void. Here, in Hilliard, throughout our nation, and even in India. God, we pray that you would use your word going out exactly how you intend to use it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's, it's been decently well documented that I enjoy fishing. And what may not be quite as well documented is that I just have not been very good at fishing. And I have gone several times uh, this summer, brought my daughter along with me, Finley, our oldest daughter. And uh, we go, and then we fish for, I don't know, an hour or two, and then we leave. And the last time, she said, yeah, Dad, I knew we weren't going to catch anything. <laughs> and so I'm trying really hard. And I'm even watching YouTube videos to try to figure out how I can catch more fish. I'm dumping money into it. And one of these videos that I recently watched was catch 15 times more bass. Try this. I've watched it. I have not caught any more bass. And it is frustrating. It's frustrating to be promised one thing and to not actually get those results. Bobby Jameson, a pastor theologian, said one of the central challenges of the Christian life is the struggle to trust God's promises. He said, but few things strengthen and sustain our faith, like seeing God's I will become I did. It can be frustrating to be promised things and them not come true, but few things strengthen the Christian faith, like seeing God fulfill his promise. And friends, I want to submit to you this morning as we go through this text, that God fulfills every one of his promises. God fulfills every one of his promises. Therefore, he is worthy to be worshipped. And so as we continue our march through the book of Exodus, let me give you a little bit of context. Last week, uh, we met, or we, we got to see God introducing himself to Moses. Moses meets this God, and he meets him in a burning bush in the wilderness. And God commands Moses to return to Egypt where he came from, to deliver God's people out of the land of Egypt, out of the oppression that his people are suffering in Egypt. Now, Moses did not respond in a way that 
we might think that he would have responded. In fact, he had five different objections to God's command to go. And he listed out his credentials. He listed out the content. Lord, what am I supposed to say? And then he said he wasn't convincing enough. They're not going to believe me. And then he went to his ability to communicate. He said, God, I'm not eloquent. And then his commitment was revealed. He's like, God, just, just, could you just send somebody else? I really just don't want to go. And each of those objections, God meets, and he tells Moses, stop looking at yourself and start looking at me. Your confidence should not be rooted in yourself. Rather, your confidence should be rooted in the God of Israel, in Yahweh. And so eventually, Moses obeys God's command. So he returns to Midian in the wilderness where he's been living for the past 40 years, and he gets his father-in-law's blessing to go back to Egypt. And this week, what we see is Moses beginning this unexpected journey. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you might appreciate that. But he begins this unexpected journey, and there's actually some unexpected twists along the way. However, as he goes along obeying God's command, doing what God has told him to do, he begins to learn more and more and more about who God is. And in fact, that's the theme of the entire book of Exodus, is God making himself known. And he does that in various different ways, but today we get to see him do that in a few ways. So our sermon text is Exodus chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 19 through 31. Exodus chapter 4, verses 19 through 31, and the outline that we have that you'll find in your bulletins is we get to see God reveal himself in three ways. We see God as Father in verses 19 through 23, God as Covenant Keeper in verses 24 through 26, and then God as Faithful in verses 27 through 31. God as Father, Covenant Keeper, and faithful. Let's read this passage. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a blue one provided there. That's, we're going to be on page 47. Page 47. So let's look for the big number four and the little number 19. And that is where we are going to start. If you don't own a Bible, that one's yours to keep. Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 19. This is God's word. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom. Of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain 
mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would see what you are doing in this passage and we would see it clearly and that our response would be to bow our heads and worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first point, God as Father, those first four verses there, first five verses, verses 19 through 23, what we see in the first two verses, 19 and 20, is God just paving the way. Look at that. And and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, this is verse 19, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So those who sought to kill Moses are now gone. Remember, Moses fleed Egypt because he recognized that there were these, uh, this Hebrew and this Egyptian struggling, and so he tried to break up the fight, the fight, and he ended up killing the Egyptian. And then the next day, he sees two, two uh, Hebrews wrestling together, and he tries to break up their fight, and they're like, hey, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to kill us the way that you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses, who thought that this killing of the Egyptian was secret, realized that it wasn't. And so he fled, and he's been in the wilderness for the last 40 years. Now, there are people who weren't super thrilled with him. Egypt's not going to be really happy with him because he killed an Egyptian. The Hebrews aren't going to be real happy with him because they feel like he's kind of inserting himself as the judge over them. And so he's going back now, and there there was a handful of people who actually sought his life, who weren't happy with him. And God says, look, all those people who sought your life, they're now dead. It's been 40 years, so it's reasonable to think that they've now passed away. And so Moses obeys, and he takes the staff of God with him. We see that in verse 20. And when we see the staff of God, what we'll see as we continue to go through this book is that God, that staff that Moses has represents God's presence. So it's notable for us to read there <clears throat> that he took the staff of God with him. Now, verse 21 is when things get a little bit interesting. So we, we just see there that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So Moses is going to perform these miracles in front of Pharaoh, the miracles that God has equipped him with. But Pharaoh's not going to listen. And God is telling him this. I'm telling you, Pharaoh's not going to listen. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart. He tells Moses in verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, it's easy to come to this, this passage right here, this phrase that we see there, I will harden his heart, and just think, hmm, that's a little weird, a little odd. I'm just going to keep reading. You know, there's a lot of excess to go. I'm just going to keep reading, and maybe I'll figure this out some other day. Well, we've come to it, and so we're, we're going to address it. And so if you did just keep on reading, what you'll find is that three more times the, we see the phrase that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see that in Exodus 9, we see it in Exodus 10, we see it again in Exodus 14. But you'll also read five other times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. See that in Exodus 7, Exodus 8, and Exodus 9. There's various verses in there. We're going to see that five other times where Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. So which is it? Is it God hardening Pharaoh's heart, 
or is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Well, we just have to take the biblical data as we see it, that it's, it's both. Both things are happening. Now, let me explain that. So that Hebrew word harden, when you read that, it can be translated as to make strong. And so God is making strong what is already there, what is already true about Pharaoh's heart, namely that it's against Yahweh. It's against God. Simply taking what's already there and making it stronger. It's like taking a cup of water and putting it in the freezer. You know, the, the substance doesn't change, but the physical aspect of it does change. It's still H2O, but it becomes physically harder when, when outside elements are introduced. And so the substance of Pharaoh's heart hasn't changed. But after introducing Moses and the signs that Moses is going to do and the plagues that are going to be brought with that, Pharaoh's heart is going to become harder toward God, and God knows that. And God intentionally does this. He, he knows this, and so the question is, is why? Why does he harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, thankfully, the, the scriptures actually tell us why. If you, you don't have to turn here, but in Romans 9, verse 17, we're told the exact reason why he does this. We read that, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart for at least two reasons. One, that he will have the opportunity to show how much more powerful Yahweh is than all these false Egyptian gods. That's the first reason. See that in Romans 9, 17. For this very purpose of raising you up, that I might show my power in you. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can put his power on display and show that Yahweh is far more powerful than these false gods of Egypt. Then the second reason is because by revealing his strength to Egypt, the world power at this time, other nations are going to see this, and they're going to realize that Yahweh has made himself known throughout the earth, and Yahweh is no one to trifle with. He is the most powerful and the only true God. God is making that known. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, he gets to put on display his power, and then Egypt begins to realize that who God is. He makes himself known. But then also the onlooking nations who are watching this take place are realizing Yahweh is a powerful God, more powerful than any of the false gods of Egypt. So both things are happening. And friends, we can just trust that God's goodness is being worked even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Romans 8 tells us that if you are in Christ, that all things work together for your good. And so God is using this man who despises God, which is the, the truth of all of us in our natural state. Until God changes our hearts, our hearts are naturally bent against him. And so God took what's there in Pharaoh in being against him and just hardened it so that his people would see and so that those around him would see how strong of a God he is, how mighty he is to save He's doing this for the good of his people. But then in verse 22 to 23, God reveals himself as father. Look at verse 22. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill 
your firstborn son. And so God's identifying Israel, this group of people, as his firstborn son, which is noteworthy because Pharaoh would have actually understood himself to be a god. He would have understood himself to be in a place of deity. And so it's like God, the true God, is talking to this man who thinks that he's God, and he says, you have my son, and I've seen the way that you've approached him, the way that you've oppressed him, and I'm about to show you that I'm more powerful than you. And so if you don't release my son, I will kill your son. Pharaoh has mistreated and abused Yahweh's son. Now Yahweh gives Pharaoh a chance to release his son. So there's a squaring off here between the gods, so to speak. We have Yahweh against Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god. And if Pharaoh refuses, then Yahweh will exercise his power and show that he will take the life of his firstborn son. And so verses 22 and 23, they beg the question. Just begging you as the readers, you read this, to ask the question, whose son is going to survive? And as we go throughout Exodus, we're going to find out whose son is going to survive. Moses was told to deliver this message to Pharaoh. The true God, Yahweh, has seen the oppression you've afflicted on his firstborn son. Now release him, or you will lose your own son. Now, friends, in a similar way, God has seen the oppression of his people, and he's done something about it. But this time, it's not Pharaoh's son who would die for their freedom, but God sent his own son. Why? Because no one else could have bore the wrath of God against sin. Anyone else who who sits under God's judgment against sin is going to have to sit under it for an eternity because they can never fully assuage God's wrath. However, if God himself sits under his wrath, then he can take it. And so God sent his own son, fully God and fully man, to stand in our place and take the wrath of God so that we could go free. So if you're hurting today, if you're going through a painful season, know this. God sees your pain. God sees the oppression of his people. And he is not idle about it. He has done something. Suffering, friends, exists because sin entered the world. However, God is working to eradicate sin completely. If you're a Christian, we say this often, but it just, it just needs to be said again and again. Do not be surprised at suffering. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Don't be surprised when you go through trials of various kinds. Don't be surprised when you do suffer. But friends, fix your hope on that eternal land that God is preparing for his people, where it will be entirely free of sin and therefore entirely free of suffering. He is providing that land. He is preparing it for us. We will suffer. We live in a sinful, fallen world. But don't fix your hope on this world. Fix your hope on the land that God is preparing for his people. There's a great hymn that Ralph Stanley wrote called Glory Land. And the first verse goes like this. He says, if you have friends in Glory Land who left because of pain, thank God up there they'll die no more. They'll suffer not again. God is preparing a place for his people where there will be no sin and therefore no suffering. He is a good father. 
He's revealed himself as Father. And he cares about the suffering and the affliction of his children. And furthermore, he addresses their suffering by making promises to them or covenants to them and keeping those covenants, which leads us into point number two of God as covenant keeper. So now, okay, here's where the story takes a bit of an unexpected turn. If you're just reading this along and you come to these three verses, verse 24, 25, and 26, you're probably, if you're reading closely, going to think, what in the world is going on here? So let's read them. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So why on earth did God go from revealing himself to Moses and answering every one of his objections and saying, you are going to be my representative to Egypt, that you are going to deliver my people from their oppression. And then Moses finally says, okay, I'll go. And then on the way, God seeks to kill him. What is going on there? It almost seems as if God is bipolar. Like he just can't seem to make up his mind what he thinks about Moses. Now, friends, that's not the case. And as we go through this, hopefully, as we spend some time looking at this, it'll become more clear what's going on. But I just want to acknowledge, as you read this, if you thought, what in the world is happening, then join the club. Totally understandable. However, even though it may seem like the opposite, God is actually being consistent. Okay, Rob, what do you mean by that? Well, hundreds of years earlier, God entered into a a relationship, a promise, a, a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17 elaborates on this. If you'd like, you can turn there so you can follow along with what I'm looking at. Uh, It's just going to be one book to the left. So if you just go earlier in your Bible. Um, But Genesis 17 elaborates on this covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, in in verses 2 through 6, here's what God says in Genesis 17 to Abraham. He says, I'm going to multiply you greatly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And you will be exceedingly fruitful. And so Abraham's offspring, there's going to be tons of them, and they are going to be God's chosen people. And then in verse 8, God promises to give Abraham's offspring a land of their own. So Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids, and they're going to have a lot of kids, and they're going to have a lot of kids, and then I'm going to provide them with a land of their own. So he entered into this covenant with Abraham when Abraham was 99 years old. And he did not have any kids at this point. So you can understand that when God says you are going to have a lot of kids, Abraham being 99 is having a little bit of a difficult time believing that. Obviously hard for him to believe that he's going to be exceedingly fruitful. Now, to serve as a reminder of that promise that God made to Abraham, he gives him a sign. And I'm not going to get into details, but that sign is intentionally tied to reproduction. I'll leave it at that, and you can kind of figure out the rest. But in Genesis 17, verse 10, we read, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And in verse 14, we see any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. 
he has broken my covenant. And so this sign of circumcision was what formally brought someone into the covenant community. It's to show that they were part of God's chosen people. So to have received the sign is to be a member of that covenant community. To lack the sign is to not be a member of that covenant community. So to summarize what's going on in Genesis 17, here's what we see. 99-year-old Abraham is going to have a lot of kids. He's going to be extremely, exceedingly fruitful. And then his offspring will be God's covenant people. So we see God choosing a people, saying, I am going to make myself known among you. I'm going to care for you. And God will give them a land of their own. And the sign that you are a part of this people that God's making all these promises to is male circumcision. Now, in the Old Covenant, God's people were identified through outward, visible signs. So male circumcision was the initiatory sign, communicated that that person, that, that guy trusted God's promises. Male circumcision was the sign of the promise. And so to receive it communicated that I trust God's promises. It signified entrance into the visible covenant community. So just as a passport communicates belonging to a country, in the same way, circumcision communicated belonging to Israel, God's chosen people. And then interestingly, later on, there would be another sign that Israel would participate in. That was the Passover meal. Now, that would be an ongoing sign that they would do every year to be reminded of God fulfilling his promise to deliver his people from their oppression into the land that he promised them. Now, what's interesting is that no male could participate in the Passover if he was not already circumcised. So if he hadn't received the initiatory sign of circumcision, he wasn't permitted to participate in the ongoing sign of the Passover meal. Okay, all that information, here's the issue that's going on here. In verses 24 to 26, here's the problem. Remember, circumcision reminded God's people of his promise and his covenant to Abraham. One, that they'd be fruitful, and two, that they would have a land of their own. Moses was chosen by God to go to this people to deliver them from the land of Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised. And so the man that God had chosen to fulfill his, a portion of his covenant promise to deliver them into a land was actually not upholding the covenant himself. He was told that you need to circumcise all of your sons, and one of the sons was not circumcised. It's like a salesman who doesn't even believe in the product that he's selling. So, the man that God chose to fulfill the covenant had failed to observe the covenant himself. Moses had sinfully disobeyed God's command to circumcise all of his sons. One of his sons was circumcised, the other one was not. And so now, in this verse, these, these three verses, God is addressing that sin. And so Moses, as God seeks to put him to death, is probably unable to do anything at this point. And so Zipporah, his wife, realizing what's going on, she acts swiftly. She recognizes that two things need to be addressed. First, Moses' sin. God commanded that he circumcise all of his sons. Moses only partially fulfilled that commandment. And friends, partial obedience is still disobedience. Moses disobeyed God's command, and so his sin needed to be 
taken care of. And Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But then the second thing that needed to be addressed was their son's circumcision. And so in one swift action, Zipporah addresses both. She circumcises her son, which is a a bloody procedure, and then she touches that against Moses. So what we see is that the covenant sign is properly administered, and the covenant is kept. God is going to use this man to, to fulfill his covenant, but he and his family need to be upholders of that covenant. And they weren't. And so Zipporah acts quickly, circumcises her son, and then takes uh, foreskin, touches Moses, and so blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then she calls him a bridegroom of blood, that you are my husband, and you have caused the shedding of blood. And look, friends, God accepted this atonement. Look at verse 26. We see, so he let him alone. God eased his judgment against Moses because blood was shed for his sin. Moses had failed to keep God's commands, but he was delivered by the actions of another, Zipporah. And friends, like Moses, we've neglected God's commands. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. And we deserve death because the wages of sin is death. And we need someone to step in and act on our behalf or else we will endure that wrath of God eternally in hell. The death we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, is averted, but only through the shedding of blood. Jesus himself did not neglect God's commands. Jesus obeyed them fully. He did what we should have done. He stepped into our place as our substitute and lived a holy and righteous life. And as our substitute, friends, he shed his blood on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sin. And so, friends, do not neglect God's commands. Christian, obeying God's commands is a good thing. It's not legalistic to obey God's commands. Friends, it's faithful. If you believe that by obeying those commands, it's going to attain salvation for you, then you get into legalistic territory. But just seeing what God has commanded and then striving to do that, that's not legalistic. That's that's faithful. Be faithful. Growing in holiness is part of the Christian walk. Holiness, just being growing in obedience. If you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have a desire to grow in holiness. But if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to think about it. Just, just think about it throughout the day or throughout the week. Each day, you are obeying somebody or something. Question is who? Who are you serving today? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's the opinions of others. Maybe it's social media followers. Maybe it's society at large. You want to be in good step with society at large. Who are you obeying? Who are you serving? Douglas Stewart commenting on this passage. He says this. He says, The Israelites had been serving Pharaoh. Now God told Pharaoh that the Israelites were going to serve him. Their liberation came, and this is important, not in being freed from having to work, but in being freed from working for the wrong master. 
If you're not a Christian today, you are working for somebody. All of your actions are to appease or to follow or to, to, to gain approval of somebody or something. Submit to you, that's the wrong master. Submit your life to Christ. Now, women in the room, if your husband is failing to follow God's commands, then be like Zipporah. Recognize what she did. She recognized the sin, and she stepped in, and she showed him and the family what obedience to God looks like. You are your husband's helper. One of the greatest ways you can help him is to model for him what obedience looks like. Help him. If he's failing to obey God's commands, be like Zipporah. And then we come to the final point here. We see that God is revealing himself as faithful. Now, everything in these last five verses, everything happens as God said it would. So we read, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. Just break that down a little bit. Look, as covenant keeper, God is entirely trustworthy. He is entirely faithful. God told Moses that Aaron was going to go out and meet him. Check. God said they'd gather the elders of Israel. Check. God said Aaron would be Moses' mouthpiece. Check. God said he'd provide signs for Moses to show the people. Check. I mean, think about it. God could have just showed him those signs right there, and then Moses could have gone to the people, and then they just, it doesn't work. God continues to be faithful. And God said the people would believe. Check. Everything God says comes to pass. Friends, if God says something, you can trust it. You can believe it. And the way that he has spoken now is through his word. You can trust what is in here. It is a gift. We're in a more privileged place than Moses. We have more of God's word. And we can open to it any time and see what he has said. And so when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can trust that he's going to be with you no matter what you are going through. When he says in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done, then you can trust that Christ is coming back and he's going to judge righteously. He's going to repay each person for what they've done. And if that feels heavy, then I'd encourage you to trust what he says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can trust that there is genuine rest in Christ. You no longer have to work for your salvation because Christ has worked on your behalf and has freely given you the righteousness needed to be right with God. You can trust. 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can trust that if you do confess your sin, you are cleansed from all, not most, not 70%, 90%, 99%, 99.999%. You are cleansed from all 
unrighteousness. If you confess your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Friends, you can trust that if you are in Christ, then you have become the righteousness of God. He looks at you and sees that perfect righteousness, that holiness. He does not see your sin because your sin has been paid for on the cross. And when Christ says that it is finished, you can trust that it is finished. And notice how the people respond to God's faithfulness. Look at the last part of 31, verse 31. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God has shown himself to be faithful to his covenant people. He over and over and over again shows himself to be faithful to his promises. Wayne Grudem says, if we are asking upon what we should base our confidence in, the answer must ultimately be that our confidence is based on the faithfulness of God. Not in our own faithfulness. We should pursue faithfulness. We should pursue holiness. We should grow in obedience. But our confidence is not in what we do. Our confidence in what is in what Christ has done. Our confidence is in the faithfulness of God, not in the faithfulness of ourselves. Friends, God fulfills every one of his promises. Therefore, he is worthy to be worshipped. Place your confidence in God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to address the oppression of his people. He sees that oppression and he's done something about it. His faithfulness to pay the penalty for their sin in full. Not in majority, in full. And then rejoice that God has seen our affliction and he has visited his people. He has sent his son to stand in our place. Let that lead to your glad worship. All of this has been accomplished in Christ, the Son of God who stood in the place of God's people as their substitute. He took on the wrath of God that we deserved to take. He stood in our place so that we could be spared from enduring it forever in hell. And that deliverance, we see a common theme in Exodus, is God delivering his people. That deliverance, that salvation that is provided in Christ is available to all who entrust themselves entirely to Christ. Israel was not going to free themselves on their own from the oppression of the Egyptians. They needed a deliverer. God has provided that for his people in the person of Jesus Christ. We're just saying Christ the true and better. I think it's verse 3 there. Christ the true and better Moses. Moses is God's deliverer to deliver his people to that land that he promised them. However, Christ is the true and better Moses who's delivering us from a greater oppression to a greater land where there is no sin and no oppression. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We are so grateful that you have seen us in our affliction and you have visited us through your Son. Lord, please help us to be reminded of your promises. Help us to believe them firmly. And let that lead to our glad worship of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.